Good afternoon, and welcome to the Netflix Q3 2023 earnings interview. I'm Spencer Wong, VP of Finance, IR, and Corporate Development. Joining me today are co-CEOs Ted Sarandos and Greg Peters and CFO Spence Newman. Our interviewer this quarter is Jessica Refrelick from Bank of America. As a reminder, we will be making forward-looking statements, and actual results may vary. Jessica, let me turn it over to you now for your first question. Thank you. So let's start with you, Ted. Now that one strike is over, the, the Writers Guild, um, what are the implications for your business? Uh, hey, thanks, Jessica. Let me first say um, we want nothing more than to resolve this and get everyone back to work. Uh, that's true for Netflix. That's true for every member of the NPTP. It's why our member CEOs have prioritized these negotiations above everything else we're doing. We spent hours and hours with SAG-AFTRA uh, over the last few weeks, and we were actually very optimistic that we were making progress. Uh, but then at the very end of our last session together, the Guild presented this new demand that kind of on top of everything uh, for a per-subscriber levy, unrelated to viewing or success, and this really broke our momentum, unfortunately. Uh, but you should know we are incredibly and totally committed to ending this strike. You know, the industry, our communities, and the economy are all hurting, uh, so we need to get a deal done that respects all sides as soon as we possibly can. Um, in terms of, you know, the impact you know, these are the times that I'm glad we have such a rich and deep and broad, you know, programming selection. Um, uh, we, you know, programming costs themselves uh, rise nearly every year, primarily driven by competition, you know, prim- competition for talent, uh, competition for shows and films. Uh, and you can see we've managed successfully through that year on year on year. Uh, and the same is true for uh, during COVID when we were able to manage the slate through a prolonged and pretty unpredictable uh, production interruptions. So, um, but I really think we're, we, you know, we're not really that focused right there on it, but how this impacts much, except for our biggest opportunity, uh, which is to continue improving the quality of the site. Uh, we're focused on that day in, day out, year in, year out. And I'm incredibly pleased with Bell and the team and the progress that they're making. So if you'll indulge me for just a second, I just would draw your attention to the Q4 slate as an example of that. Uh, you know, headlined by the return of the crown for its final season. You know, this is one of the most ambitious television shows in the history of television. We have a new season of Big Mouth, the history, a uh, new season of Elite, uh, the launch of Berlin, which is a spinoff from our La Casa de Papel or Money Heist franchise, uh, and new limited series like All the Light You Cannot See from Sean Levy. That's incredible. And Bodies from the UK. And that's just on the TV side. And on the film side, one of our strongest quarters ever. Uh, we have this enormous uh, science, sci-fi spectacular from Zack Snyder, Rebel Moon, a new film from David Fincher, uh, The Killer, and these films that just lit up the fall film film uh, festivals recently, like May, December from Todd Haynes and Bradley Cooper's Maestro, the doc feature, American Symphony. That's all coming in Q4. Uh, and for family viewing, too, you know, we've got a new uh, animated feature from Adam Sandler called Leo that's hysterical. Uh, Tick and Run 2, which is the sequel to the most successful stop-motion animation uh, film ever, Uh, and a new series from the Coco Melon world uh, called Coco Melon Lane, Uh, Family Switch from director McGee with Jennifer Garner and Ed Helms. So it's an incredible slate, something new and exciting for all tastes, all moods, all ages, and we're just super proud of the team that they've been able to manage through this and uh, and still deliver so much joy for our members. One more on... on Strike-related, yeah. you know, like the, the just just you know the the aftermath. Um, you discussed at a recent conference giving talent more transparency. 
you know, can, could you talk about what that looks like? What are the new metrics talent will be paid on? And is it, is it even standardized across the industry? Yeah, look, what I, what I talked about there was um, heading towards a world where, that where streaming data will be much more readily available. Remember, stream, data, streaming itself is uh, not that exotic anymore. We've been doing it for 15 years. So um, we, in the beginning, um, we thought there was a hard kind of apples and oranges comparison to ratings and streaming. And I think we've gotten to a place where it's mostly about engagement, and that does capture the value of watching and that things will become much more transparent the way TV's always had ratings and music's always had billboard and the theatricals always had box office. So it'll be much more common for the data to be fully transparent. What I didn't mention, though, is that part of that of our reason for not publishing early was part of our promise with creators. At the time we started creating original program, our, crea- our creators were, felt like they were pretty trapped in this kind of overnight ratings world and weekend box office world defining their success and failures. And as we all know, um, you know, a show might have enormous success down the road and it wasn't captured in that opening box office. So, so part of this was the, the relationship with talent, uh, not just the business aspects of it. And I do think that uh, over time people are much more interested in this. Uh, we're on the continuum today of how much data do we publish. I think we've been leading the charge, starting everyone down the path of a top 10, uh, publishing our top 10 list and our, you know, annual wrap-up list and everything that give uh, a lot of transparency to the viewing. And I just expect it will be more and more transparent. Great. Let's move on to paid sharing. Have you identified most of the borrower, borrowers? And can, can you provide any help in, in how much more is left to go in the challenge in completing the crackdown? Sure, I'll, I'll take that one. Uh, and I'll start by saying um, we're just incredibly pleased with how it's been going. And you can see the progress from our membership growth in Q2. Now in Q3, you can see it embedded in the revenue outlook for Q4. I think paid sharing represents the kind of difficult challenge where, you know, we needed to balance both important, relevant consumer considerations with um, the importance of ensuring that our business got reasonably paid when we deliver entertainment. And um, it's an example where we leverage core executional capabilities that we've been building for over a decade, sort of how you develop good product experiences, how do you solve hard problems through them, how do you have an iterative model where you listen to consumers to tell us what's working and what's not. So we've been uh, excited about that. But because it's such a challenging problem, such we're, we're shifting essentially consumers' expectations and what they what they expect from us. We've always thought that making this change should be done in a steady, considered way. And so our plan has been to stage out this rollout. Uh, we've been delivering our product experience to different borrower cohorts according to that plan. And as a result, I think as you're alluding to, uh, there are a number of borrower cohorts which, has, as of today, have not received part of that experience. And just to explain that a bit, I mean, part of the motivation to stage it out is based on technical considerations. So this is our ability to build features and improve model accuracy over time in a way that allows us to ensure that we're accurately developing and applying our interventions in as effective and as positive a way for consumers as possible. Part of that has been just to stage things out based on borrower behavior. So we want to show up with the right product experience at the right moment that's more, uh, you know, likely to convert a, a borrower over rather than have them spin off. So we want to think about that for maximizing long-term revenue. So we're going to continue the rollout uh, for the next couple quarters. I think, you know, folks are trying to figure out how much, how much juice is left there. 
And I would say we anticipate that we will have incremental acquisition, incremental ads for the next several quarters. We've seen that in the last couple of quarters. I think also worth noting that that was on top of also very healthy organic, meaning not driven by paid sharing growth. So we anticipate, um, you know, seeing that for the next several quarters to come. And then just stepping back, you know, there's a set of borrowers um, that we're not going to convert. We haven't converted yet. We're not going to convert over the next couple quarters. But that really represents how we think about page sharing going forward, which is it's now become part of just our standard way of operating. And, you know, we have many uh, hundreds of millions of qualified, uh, you know, households out there. There's smart TV households that we want to win over over the next several years. And those borrowers we're not going to convert in the next couple of quarters represent that same group. So we got to go after them the same way we're going after people who have never signed up for Netflix, which is having an incredible content offering and incredible value, and get them so excited that they just have to sign up. Right. Moving on to the um, recent advertising restructuring, can you talk about why you made the management change and what you would like to accomplish? Yeah. First, I'd say Jeremy has done a great job getting us essentially from zero to where we are today. She's laid the foundation for the ads business. Um, she's hired and built a, a burgeoning team of leaders who, in turn, now are, are hiring the teams and people who are going to take the business forward. But um, it's an important time and uh, I think a great time for Amy to come in and extend that great work to build on that foundation and drive our ads business to the next level. And, you know, why am I so specifically excited about Amy and the role? First of all, she's a high Netflix tenure uh, employee. She's been with the company for over seven years. She's demonstrated uh, really positive impact and great results in several different roles, but most recently as part of the studio and leading a big global team that is scaling very, very, very quickly, which sounds familiar, you know, when you think about what, where we want to take our ads business. Second, she's got broad entertainment uh, uh, experience, ranging from content licensing, distribution. She's got business development, uh, finance strategy at Netflix, and in prior roles. So I think when you think about that assemblage of, of skills and you think about the existing ads leadership team that we have that has got a rich, rich history in ads in general and connected TV, especially you think about somebody like Peter Naylor who started you know, selling connected TV at Hulu. That's a strong team to take our ads business to the next level. And, if, and maybe I'll just, if you, I want to maybe just restate what we think that the promise and the opportunity sort of where we're at on ads business is. And so, first of all, just starting off with, you know, this is a $180 billion uh, opportunity when you think about linear TV, you think about connected TV, not including YouTube, not including China and Russia. And we think we're in a great position to win some of those dollars. We've got great content. Uh, the brands want to be next to. We're a safe place for brands to exist. We've got great engagement from our members. That's a really strong foundation um, to work with. But we've got a lot of work, and we know we have a lot of work to fulfill that potential. You know, among that work, we've said it many times, I'll say it probably many times going forward, but scale is the number one priority. We're making good progress there. This quarter, uh, we grew our ad plan me- membership 70% sequentially quarter to quarter. That's on top of the last quarter where we grew at 100% quarter to quarter. We now have 30% of our new signups choosing our ads plan in our ads countries. And we've done it by making the ads uh, offering more competitive. We've gotten to over 95% content parity with our non-ads plans. We've improved features like number of streams, the video resolution. We're going to keep doing that. We're adding downloads now. Um, So we'll keep that good trajectory going and keep focusing on it. Second big priority for us is delivering features and products that advertisers want. We've heard again and again, I've heard it this week, uh, ad week from advertisers, top of that list is measurement. 
We've launched our measurement uh, partnership with Nielsen in the United States this month in October, so we're excited about that. We've got a long list of other partners across other countries that we've got to deliver that same capability in, so we're excited about getting that out. We're also excited about um, new products. So we've rolled out our uh, top 10 uh, media buy. We're going to roll out our binge ad product later this year. We're launching more ways to buy programmatically through Microsoft. That gives more buyers more ways to access our inventory. So we've got a lot of work to do here on all those fronts, um, but we've always said this is a multi-year build, a multi-year progress. We've got a lot that we've got going on, and we're excited about the future to come. So now that you've phased out basic for new subs and you're getting extra members uh, or paid more per sub from password sharing crackdown, and you've introduced advertising in 12 countries, can you talk about the outlook for ARM in 24 and beyond? You guys want me to take that one? Go ahead, Spence. <laughs> All right, you wound it up for me. Thanks, Jessica. So I, I would say just generally when we think about 24 and beyond, uh, think about it as our revenue growth profile in general. And we talked about this recently. We sp- we expect a more balanced mix of membership and arm growth in 24 and beyond 24. So just looking at 24 specifically, uh, as you know, Ted talked about, we expect to have a great slate to drive the business forward. And we expect to continue to do things like add extra members, grow our advertising revenue, as, 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 as Greg discussed. And um, in addition, have some pricing adjustments. You saw that in our letter. All those things will drive arms. So 23 was a pretty unusual year where essentially all of our growth came from member growth. And going forward and more broadly, not just 24 and beyond, you know, we'll grow our business by continuing, continuing to kind of improve our service, increasing engagement, increasingly satisfying current and future members. And now that, it, you know, as Greg discussed, now that we've got an account sharing solution, we have a more clear path to more deeply penetrate that big addressable market of, you know, a half a billion connected TV households and growing. And with our continued uh, plan evolution, pricing sophistication, and all that hard work on our ads business, we'll, we'll keep getting better at monetizing that big and, and growing reach and engagement. So we believe um, we've got a long runway for growth in both kind of more membership and higher arm over time. In, in a more balanced way than, than what you saw this year, which uh, was, again, a pretty unusual year. And then you, you, you touched on, Brett touched on, on scale and advertising. How do you get to scale? Is it all through pricing, uh, you know, like pricing changes? And, and what would you consider scale? Yeah, I think it's important to note that scale isn't, um, it's not a binary uh, condition, right? So it's not like you, you know, suddenly add one more member and you become a must-buy situation. So we become increasingly competitive with increasing reach. Um, it's also, I think, worth noting that it's different in different countries, and it's largely based on, you know, what's the competitive channels and what's that competitive dynamic. Um, so having said that, though, you know, we carry several relevancy targets uh, on a per-country basis. Think about this as essentially a percentage of market penetration that helps us focus and drive the rate of growth um, that we desire. Uh, and we've got more work to do to get those. So, I mean, like, we're not satisfied with the scale that we're at in any country that we're in. We want to be bigger. We know we can be bigger. I think there's a variety of techniques that we can employ to do that, uh, pricing and thinking about, you know, how do we uh, factor in what's optimal pricing for ads, no ads. That's part of what we're doing and thinking about plan evolution. Part of it is what I mentioned before, which is feature set, right? We, these, this, these are the things that, um, you know, consumers want to sign up for. Part of it, too, is actually just educating consumers. I think what we are seeing is that in some of our countries, 
uh, consumers think about an ads experience mostly anchored in linear and what their expectation around ad load, uh, frequency rates are. And to some degree, actually, some of our streaming uh, competitors haven't done maybe as great a job in building an ads experience, which informs that expectation as well. So part of it is just, you know, educating consumers about what the actual Netflix ads experience is so that they can think about what's the right choice for them. Do they want a lower price with ads and what we think is a great ads experience for consumers, really? Or do they want to pay more and uh, and skip ads? So it's all those things coming together that ultimately drive us to, to the several multiples of scale that we're at today that we'll be satisfied with. One last one, maybe on advertising before we move on to margins. But, um, you know, you, you mentioned a lot of the innovative offerings that, that you plan on and some of the sponsors. You just, it's, it's very unique. It's different. When do we get to a point or when will you have a point where it's targeted, addressable, so it's really relevant for consumers and, and so they would want to see the ads? Yes. So we're working with Microsoft right now on targeting. So you'll see that roll out in the near future. Um, and that, I think, is the first step of how we think about increasing targeting relevance through both a combination of product sets. So what are the types of ad products that brands can buy that yield increasing relevance, as well as improving our sort of sophistication on what we might call targeting from a digital perspective, which is basically matching uh, consumers who are most interested in that particular brand's message. All right. So, Spence, I guess this one's you on, on margins, but... Could you elaborate on areas like ad tech, content spend? Well, you, you did talk about content spend in your letter, but any other meaningful investment areas, something that, that maybe we're not thinking about? Uh, sure. So well, let me uh, step back a bit with some quick context. So first, uh, Jessica, we, we set margin targets. There are, there are best judgment of how kind of best to grow the long-term value of net, Netflix, and we're trying to balance investment for future growth with near-term profits. So, for instance, um, after investing heavily to launch Global in 2016, Global Netflix, we wanted to take a disciplined approach to, to building profitability as, as we grew revenue because um, we felt, one, it was a good way to build that profit muscle across the company, and two, we understood that investors were, they've been pretty patient with us, so we wanted to demonstrate the scalability and the health of the business model. And so that took us from, you know, was like, you know, 4% OI margin, operating income margin business in 2016 to our current roughly 20% margin. So we think a pretty good indicator that at scale streaming can be a quite good business. Uh, now stepping back, there's, there's no change in our financial objectives and also no change in our long-term margin expectations, including the fact that we see a, we don't think we're anywhere near a margin ceiling. We've got a long runway of, of margin growth. So again, no change in our objective and no change in our long-term margin expectations. But at our current profitability and, and scale, we think it's prudent to, to balance that historical pace of margin improvement uh, with growth investments. So you asked about growth investments. We think we've got a lot of places where we can continue to invest. Plenty of room to invest further in our existing content categories. We're a small share of viewing in, in every country in which we operate plus building out those ad capabilities that Greg talked about, our live offering, and new content categories like games. So there's plenty to do. But all that said, we'll, we'll continue to drive healthy margin expansion. We expect roughly 22 to 23% operating margin in 24, assuming no material swings in FX. So that's up from our current expectation of 20% this year, which is at the high end of the range that we targeted in the beginning of the year. 
So, so again, Jessica, just like, you know, we did in the past going forward, we'll take a disciplined approach to balancing margin improvement with investing into our growth. We actually put a chart in at the end of the letter that shows how we've managed that balance historically, you know, growing content investment, profit margins, and cash flow. And you should expect that we'll carry that same discipline going forward as we invest and grow into that big opportunity ahead. Um, how does licensing content from third parties play into your overall content strategy? It seems like you've had incredible success with third-party content. In the, well, I mean, you always have, but in the last year, things like Suits or Band of Brothers, uh, and you mentioned it in the letter. Um, but, you know, if you could just talk about the third-party licensing. Yeah, yeah licensing third-party content has always been part of our strategy, and we've all, something we've been really great at being able to do is match that audience. I think Suits is a great example of the – impact of the Netflix effect that we can have. Uh, because of our distribution footprint and our recommendation system, we were able to take suits, which, um, you know, had played on cable and had played on other streaming services, and, and pop it right into the center of the culture in a huge way, not just in the U.S., but all over the world. Um, you know, according to the Nielsen charts, uh, Suits was the number one watch streaming uh, streaming series for 13 straight weeks. That's like that's a that is a record for for Nielsen. So um, this continues to be important for us to add a lot of breadth of storytelling to our consumers of a wide range of taste. And we we can't make everything, uh, but we can help you find just about anything. That's the that's really the strength. And I do think that um, looking you mentioned uh, Band of Brothers, but in that HBO deal. We had Insecure, we had Ballers that came out, and they were very successful on Netflix, and they popped into the top ten on their originating network for the first time. So that was um, on, the stream, on, the, on their streaming service, which is really powerful. Um, and I, I think we have more to come with Six Feet Under and True Blood coming, uh, and not just on the TV side, but, you know, we're also proud to be able to bring uh, movies like Super Mario Brothers and Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse uh, from our other suppliers, and you know, in one way or another, we're in business with nearly every supplier, including our direct competitors. And I think that we bring a ton of value to them. And I, I think when you think about what happens when that show runs in and becomes a huge success on Netflix, it has lasting value. I mean, look at the um, the value we created that still continues today for shows like Friends and The Office and Full House and Gilmore Girls and all these other shows that really found found an audience on Netflix even after they have more or less played out uh, through traditional models. Spent some more on, on margins for you, but you, you said in September that long-term margins will be, I think the way you said it was similar to other networks, which historically have been in the 40 to 50% range. Could you help us think through the rampant margins over time? Uh, Jessica, I'll, I'll probably disappoint you as I have in the past on this. We're not going to put a, a long-term Number out there, uh, as, as I said, we, we don't see any, any ceiling, any near-term ceiling to our, our long-term margin uh, potential. We've talked in the past about how we're going to feel our way through to those kind of long-term steady-state margins, but we think we have a lot of things working in our favor. We have a very scalable business model. You see that. You see that play out over the last handful of years and continue to do so as we produce content all over the world for big local impact, but also with the ability for those stories to, you know, through great subs, dubs, uh, discovery to reach more and more people and, and to be enjoyed around the world. So it's a very scalable content model. It's a global network at scale that has, the, you know, in many ways, um, has not been seen with legacy entertainment networks. So we think we've got a long way to go. And as I just talked about, we want to balance 
um, those uh, increasing profits in, in, in the near term with investing into that long-term opportunity. So still a lot of runway. That's, you know, a set of benchmarks you can look at. There's others as well, but suffice to say, we think we've got a long, um, a long and, and healthy runway in terms of growing margins. The only thing I would add to that, um, Jessica, also totally agree with uh, what Sven said, which is, again, a lot of opportunity to grow margins, but profit dollars also matter too, right? So as we expand into big new addressable markets like advertising that Greg alluded to or gaming also, right? So, you know, those open up big new sort of areas for us to expand into, uh, and we intend to grow margins too, but we also want, you know, a lot of profit dollars as well. So we're not narrowly optimizing just for percentage margin. Right, of course. Um, you announced some price changes today in premium and basic in several countries, um, and more to come. Can you provide a current view of price increase or time frame for the standards here? Yeah, so, you know, as you know, our focus on plan evolution over the last 18 months has largely been about paid sharing. And now that we've rolled that out, we broadly see the benefits, you know, as outlined in the, in the letter, um, that's become a normal part of our business, which then allows us to return to our core approach to pricing. And that approach, that philosophy has not changed. We look to wisely invest the money that our members pay us, deliver back to them more amazing stories, more entertainment value. And then when we think we're doing that, we'll occasionally ask them to pay a bit more uh, to keep that virtuous uh, circle spinning. So hence the changes that you noted and that we've announced in the letter. I think it's also worth noting that we seek to have a wide uh, and even wider over time range of price points uh, with the corresponding set of features, of course, that allows you know, entertainment fans from around the world that have different needs uh, to be able to access the great storytelling that our creative partners are doing at a price point that works for them, at a feature set that works for them. Uh, part of that widespread is the low entry price point, uh, and that's why we're keeping uh, that low entry price point um, static as it is. So we think that this, uh, you know, $6.99 in the U.S., £4.99 in the U.K., €5.99 in France, I guess it's an incredible entertainment value. And if you think about the breadth and the variety of storytelling that we're offering, whether that's compared to our streaming competitors, uh, compared to traditional pay TV, certainly, um, even the price of a movie ticket, you know, we think that's an, just an amazing offer. And our goal and plan is to continue uh, to be a great entertainment value. And beyond that, um, we're not going to comment on other price changes or other changes on, on tiers. We'll sort of find our way based on that philosophy and see when the right time um, to ask customers to pay a little bit more would be. One more question on the pricing, though. Would you be given the price increase for, for just premium and basic, not standard? Do, do you expect any or, or advertising tier? Do you expect any movement between the tiers as a result of these price increases? I think pricing always results in a bit of movement between the tiers. More of that movement is how people are signing up. So we see that as more, uh, you know, what it influences. But um, also it'll, it'll influence plan changes as well. Uh, but generally plan changes tend to be relative, or plans tend to be relatively sticky. So I would imagine that there's a, that momentum will continue. Um, so your letter today says that you will, you know, stated that you will spend $17 billion in 24 on content uh, spends uh, up from $13 billion in 23. Obviously, that was somewhat strike impacted. How, does, how, should we, how can you help us think through how content spend will grow beyond 24? What is normalized growth? 
Well, you well, see that we've done is we've, we've wanted to grow the content spend, uh, you know, just a, about a half a step ahead of the ahead of revenue to create the value proposition for our members. So uh, the more we put into it, and a lot of it is tied to the ability to create hits out of the, out of that pool. And I would say one thing, if I could, if you don't, um, this past quarter we had this really remarkable story about something that we could do. With this, Ben's talked a little bit about the kind of scale of the of the content spend, but to show one piece. Uh, one piece is something that is a very unique uh, property. Uh, to, to created 26 years ago uh, by Kira Oda. It's a, uh, a 20, it is a, over a thousand episodes of the animated series based on the Japanese manga. It's a, it's a, it's nearly sacred IP, uh, and we were able to with the, our Japanese creative teams and our American teams getting together, uh, working with our partners at Tomorrow Studios and the showrunner Stephen Meta. Uh, to uh, adapt this into a show that the world fell in love with. And I, what I say that is that we've got this show is number one in 84 countries around the world, which is something that Stranger Things couldn't, didn't do, that Wednesday didn't do. Uh, and it's so rare for an, Amer- an English show to be that popular in Japan and Korea, Brazil, and in the U.S. at the same time. And the other fun part of it is uh, Inaki Godoy, who stars in, uh, uh, in the show, uh, it was one of the most difficult casting challenges in the history of our original programming was who's going to play Monkey D. Luffy. And he was right under our nose, right in our talent family. We discovered him a couple of years ago and had him in this great show in our Mexican series called Who Killed Sarah? Um, and then we were able to cast him in this, and now he's a global superstar. So this is that kind of uh, thing you could do well, uh, thing that's hard to copy, uh, and gives us kind of competitive running room from, from our competitors being able to do that more and more. I don't mean, when I say that, I don't mean uh, making things more global. I think making things that really resonate for the core audience. And usually local audiences are, want very local content. And in this case, the local audience is the fan of One Piece, uh, which was very discriminating, and we had to please them first, just like our original shows in Spain have to really please the Spanish customer first. So we can do this. We spend the money well. We have impact with the spend, and we grow it as we grow revenue. And, and maybe, oh, sorry, go ahead. Jessica, I was just going to build a little bit on, on Ted's point on the kind of trajectory of content spend. Um, so, and we talked about this a little bit in the past. So first, it, in the letter, we talk about the fact for 24, we hope to get cash content spend back up to at or near that $17 billion level. The biggest swing factor is going to be when the uh, SAG after strike uh, resolves. Um, and so that'll get us to a, you know, a cash to P&L ratio kind of closer to one to 1.1 times. Um, and so we're not um, putting a specific number out there for free cash flow in 24. What that gets us to when you think about the con- combination of our revenue growth outlook, our margin guidance, and target cash content spend, uh, we'll, we'll deliver substantial free cash flow in 24. And then going beyond that, we do expect to tick up our, our content investment over time. Um, as we also prove that sustained uh, healthy revenue growth. So, you know, assuming, uh, you know, we talked about, I think in the last call, assuming no big expansions, we'd expect our cash to P&L uh, ratio of content spend cash to content amort in the P&L to be roughly 1.1 times. So that's kind of one way folks are thinking about how to model our growth in content spend. If we, as we grow our revenue, as we improve our profitability, we should see both increasing content spend, but also free cash flow growing nicely over time. And just one last, just a follow-up to Ted, though. There's so much going on in content 
right now. Could you maybe talk about investment priorities? Like, how do you think about whether it's local language, film, TV? You've made a lot of um, deals with some third-party Film companies, television companies, could you, could you give us some color on, on, on how you think about content spend? Yeah, we always have a lot of plate spinning uh, because our members have got such uh, such different tastes and different desires, and we're trying to please them all. Uh, and like I say, trying to find that person who really fell in love with us for Prestige TV and then discovered Love is Blind. Uh, that's a pretty common household, to be honest with you. So we've got to be able to be good at so many different things. And our partnerships, um, I'm assuming you're talking about uh, um, Skydance in this case, um, is really helps us find and keep up that scale as we grow. So we're really thrilled with our success in animated features. Uh, it's a very long cycle of development and production. Sometimes it could take a decade to deliver a really great animated feature film. Uh, and as you know, we move pretty fast, and we've been moving pretty fast. And no single company has ever really successfully launched more than two animated features in a single year. So we, you know, wanted this. That deal helps us to um, to uh, complement the work that we're doing. Like you saw this year with Leo and Chicken Run coming out, and uh, and the Mona that already came out. So we've got a very. There's a ton of appetite. If you look at the top ten animated features of since Nielsen's been tracking movie watching, and seven of them are animated features. So there's a lot of appetite for animated features, and we're committed to that part of the business. And we do that through a combination of licensing, of partnerships, and original production and original creation, and not just in the U.S., but all over the world. So we have to find that right balance of invest finding the right product market fit, which helps us grow those territories, and most importantly, helps create a value proposition for consumers, and they could say, hey, that, that what I pay for Netflix, uh, I could pay a little bit more because I get so much value there, and I'm spending so much of my time there. So if you think about the, you know, for the last 37 to the last 38 weeks of this year, Netflix has had the number one streaming series on, on of all, in all of streaming, and for 31 of those 38 weeks, we've had the number one movie, too. And in any given week, we might have had the number one, two, and three. So we really, you know, we, we've got a lot going on, and we've got to stay focused on continuing to improve the value proposition to consumers, which drive the numbers that we've been talking about on this call. Spence, you announced a very significant increase in your buyback today. Should we think of the $2.5 billion buyback in the third quarter as, as sort of a run rate moving forward? Uh, I, I wouldn't. I, I wouldn't kind of read through to that, Jessica. We had kind of slowed down as we, as the business slowed down, and we wanted to. We talked about the fact that we had less, um, less than typical forward visibility into our, into our forecast over the, over the past year or so, as we were um, looking to reaccelerate the business and also roll out paid sharing. And now, um, much of that is behind us, as we've said, and we've got a, a better view going forward. And so we ramped up our our repurchase because we, we had built up some cash on the balance sheet as well. Our, our target uh, minimum cash is roughly two months of revenue. So, you know, plus or minus $6 billion of cash that we look to hold on our balance sheet. And we had gotten ahead of that. Uh, we're still a little ahead of that. Um, so, but that, that's really what we're managing to is to, um, one, primarily drive the business forward, grow the business, expand our cash flow, and then if cash, excess cash builds on the balance sheet to return it to shareholders. So uh, we put a pretty specific target out there of roughly two months of revenue in the form of cash on the balance sheet, and that's, that's, that's uh, the way I think you should think about what our pacing will be over time. Great. Moving on to gaming, it, it feels like almost like the way you describe advertising, like a walk, crawl, run approach. What is the near and midterm strategy in gaming? 
Well, let's start with the big prize. I think that's the better way to look at it, which is, you know, games is a huge entertainment opportunity. So we've talked about $140 billion worth of consumer spend on games outside of China and outside of Russia. And from a strategic perspective, we believe that we can build games into a strong content category, leveraging our current uh, core film and, and series by connecting members, especially members that are fans of specific IPs, with games that they will love. And I think it's worth noting that, you know, if, if we can make those connections, and as we make those connections, as we're seeing, we're essentially sidestepping the biggest issue that the mobile games market has today, which is how do you cost-effectively acquire new players. Um, so that's the real proposition, and we think if we deliver that, we give members, you know, great games, entertainment experiences that they love at sufficient scale, then we leverage back into the core business. We increase engagement, we increase retention, we increase value delivered. Those all drive our core business metrics. And I think it's it's actually just a very natural extension of what you were just talking with Ted about. If you think about the range of content that we're offering, the variety of content and entertainment that we're offering, games just adds one extra layer to that variety and that depth. And we're also seeing, I would say, back to moving it more to your, to your short-term and mid-term, we're also seeing performance metrics that support that this fundamental strategic hypotheses are sound. So games engagement right now on our service drives core business metrics in a way which is incremental to movies and series. So, but the, the main challenge ahead of us to get to your midterm is that our current scale, and frankly our current investment level, uh, are both very, very, very small relative to our overall content spend and engagement. So now our job is to incrementally scale to the place where games have a material impact on the business. We've got ambitious plans there. We want to really grow our engagement by many multiples of where it is today over the next handful of years. And we can see, you know, how to get there. Uh, looking a layer deeper at the title level, we see, you know, some titles are really working for our members and they're working for our business. If we can do more of those, we know we can scale into that proposition. We've got to do that through better title selection based on everything that we're learning. We've got to do it on better product features to maximize connection with the audience for any given title. And we have to do it by gradually improving uh, consumer awareness, which is we've you know, seen is when we launched other content categories, you can think about unscripted or you can think about film, that broadly lifts overall engagement metrics as consumers learn that we're a place to go to to find games. I'm excited about what we got going on in Q4. We're going to launch some uh, big, uh, high-profile titles, which sort of keeps that drumbeat going. We've got Dead Cells. We've got Football Manager 2024. We've got Money Heist. Think about connections with RIP. That's coming in Q4 as well. That's Casa de Papel for folks who uh, uh, have saw it in that language. Uh, we also have Virgin River uh, coming in Q1. So as you pointed out, this trajectory is not dissimilar from what we've seen before, when we've launched a new region, think about Latin America, or we launched a country like Japan where, you know, traditional Western media companies have struggled, or we launched new genres um, like Unscripted. We've got to crawl, walk, run, and we build it, but we see a tremendous amount of opportunity to build a long-term center value of entertainment, more entertainment value for our members. It's a great experience for the super fan to, uh, to get themselves in the universe in between seasons of a show. It's really exciting. Uh, Jessica, we have time for about two last questions, please. Okay, great. Okay, two and so the first of the two, um, sports. You're creating the Netflix Cup tournament to be aired next month. Yeah. Is this a change in your sports strategy at all, or, or you know, how should we think about that? Yeah, uh, I knew that. I knew this was coming, Jessica. Uh, 
Give it, we are in the sports business, but we're in the part of the sports business that we bring the most value to, which is the drama of sport. So look at the success we've had with Drive to Survive. Uh, look at the success we've had with Tour de France, uh, quarterback, full swing, uh, untold. Uh, most recently with Beckham. Uh, David Beckham is one of the biggest stars in the world, and his documentary on Netflix brought him uh, almost half a million new social media followers in a week. So we are having a, a big impact on sports through the thing that we're most great at, which is the drama of sport. Uh, the Netflix Cup is, is, is a live event that actually brings together the cast of Drive to Survive um, and Full Swing and puts them into a live golf tournament that we are going to stream live on Netflix on November 14th. And it's, I think about it as a great way of extending those great drama of sport brands that we've created, but no core change in our live sports strategy or licensing live sports. We are investing heavily in increasing our live capabilities so that as we, uh, you know, as we, as, as the demand grows for that and we find different ways that live, the liveness can be part of the creative storytelling, we want to be able to do that at big scale. There was some news also today, I guess, on comedy, but my last question to, to stay with was yes. Spencer asked. Um, you, you've talked a little bit more recently about your ancillary businesses, including the Netflix house. Can you talk yeah. about what that looks like over time? Um, and will it be, you know, will it be a big investment area, but more importantly, will it be a contributor? Yeah, look at um, uh, the, this, this, this initiative lives inside of our consumer products and experiences group. Um, we, today, they run these successful businesses where they travel these live experiences all over the world, and fans engage in them in ways that would shock you. People love these things so much, they show up. Dozens of people have proposed marriage in the, at the Bridgerton Ball. Um, it's really important, a way to kind of deepen uh, fandom, a way to express fandom. Uh, you kind of see it on a large scale with theme parks. Um, these build-outs are not going to be like a theme park, both in that they won't have that gigantic, you know, CapEx, uh, and they also, uh, we expect that fans will go multiple times a year, not just once every couple of years. Uh, and it's a way to take a business that's really good at growing our brands and strengthening our brands, and today doesn't, you know, has to have a big startup and shut down costs as they travel around, and pr- put them under one umbrella uh, where we can add a little technology and make it a really phenomenal experience from being uh, as part of the Money Heist uh, escape room or the Stranger Things experience uh, or the Squid Game Challenge, all those different things that people can do live together and have a lot of fun. Uh, and they could also go to the Netflix Bites and have a food experience with all the Netflix food brands. So it really kind of strengthens the brands and strengthens the excitement about the things that people are watching on Netflix and falling in love with and gives them a place to go and express it. Um, it's not a material investment relative to the court, to the big business that we're all in, uh, but it's a great way of building it, like our consumer products business. Great. Well, Jessica, thank you very much uh, for your questions, and uh, we appreciate everybody tuning in to our earnings call, and uh, we're looking forward to chatting with you all uh, next quarter, if not sooner. Thank you.